Hello, everyone. What's up? <laughs> Liz and Elisa here from The Medium. Welcome back to another episode of The Medium, The Message. Today, we're here to talk about an exciting project that we've worked on for months now. Yeah. <coughs> oh, my God. Not Liz dying over here. Sorry. For an exciting project that... Um, to talk about an exciting project that we've worked on for months now, our well-awaited magazine... And this episode is going to be exciting because you're going to be talking to all our our whole team, basically our whole our whole team of contributors for this magazine. Contributors. Our con- like contributors. Our contributors. <laughs> is it contributors or contributors? Contributors. No, I think it's contributors because you're not. British now. You you say <laughs> things differently. It's, yeah. So Liz is now British, but I'm that's not. a side note. It's contributors though. <laughs> so our contributors. No, it's literally. Oh my god. Oh my god, you're actually... Okay, wait. Contributors. Ready? Contributor. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, so our contributors... <laughs> contributors. Stop. Okay. We say contrib- contributors because we have videographers, <laughs> photographers, not just writers, but like, yeah, there's a whole creative team behind this For magazine. this magazine, we're talking about people on the medium's editorial team, so people that work with us. Um, and we've created a beautiful, tangible magazine all around stands on campus. It stands out. It's aesthetic. You're going to want it on your coffee table. And you know what it's called? What is it called? It's called Moving Still. that as you hear all these different stories you reflect on your time in isolation both during the pandemic and perhaps in your personal life now and before and um we hope that you read the paper or not the paper we hope you read the magazine on the medium.ca um it's kind of the front page for this week because it's a big big deal yeah and we're just so grateful for our whole team mm-hmm. and also for um our design our designer manjot who's yes. actually she won't make an appearance um verbally no. into the podcast but she shared a bit about um let me pull her design experience and you know her thought process behind the front cover um so she's actually also the one that came up with the title moving still so this woman is just incredibly creative she designs everything all the time for us including mm-hmm. our weekly issues so um you know what? Let me just read through. Yeah, let's read it first. My first idea, which oddly enough is the one we used because usually the first idea is not the best, is of this person placed in between the front and back cover. In my mind, I imagined that as you are opening the magazine, it feels like you are getting into the person's mind, accessing the collect the collection of thoughts and experiences, mirroring mirror, <laughs> mirroring the writing. Where am I? Oh, where each article reveals people's lives and perspectives. Okay, let me reword that. So, um, on the front cover, we have a face that kind of... Listen, you need to go to themedium.ca and check it out for yourself. But if I'm going to use my beautiful descriptive language, there's a face and it has a hand on it. And the back cover, like, flows into that same image. And what Manjot told us is that her idea, which is genius... She imagines that as you open the magazine, you feel like you are getting into the person's mind, accessing the collection of thoughts and experiences. Yes, thank you for rereading it. Mirroring the writing (laughs) where each article reveals people's lives and perspectives. So that's beautiful because that's what it is. Like these are our lives and perspectives that we are sharing with you. Mm -hmm. And so that's the front cover. And I like how she used sketches. Like the the way that she drew it is kind of line art and it's kind of sketches. And it's a a kind of like a duller tone, but not in like a sad way, but it's just like a very like She calls it controlled chaos, which I think is beautiful. Uh Um, And we have a ongoing theme of blue here at the medium. Um, and that's also mirrored in our editor's note where we talk about the idea of water. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think... Um, so, yeah, she wrote, similar to the movement of water, it is moving, referring to the lines on the front cover. Yeah, and then she also talks about um, the interaction of the face and the hands and a level of intimacy that evokes inner turmoil. The caging of the hands is locking the person away, isolating in their own mind and body. I wanted to highlight the pressure of the hands pressed into the face. There's this tension created. Is the person pulling their face apart or are they holding themselves together? And in that tension, I felt it conveyed stillness. 
oh, mm-hmm. literally what? Like genius. So on that note, we want to say a huge thank you to Manjot and a huge yeah. congratulations for doing this with us and sitting through the hours of back and forth. You've been such a, an amazing person to work with and mm-hmm. we are so grateful for everything that you do. Mm-hmm. And on the same note, to our beautiful team, yeah you guys are you guys killed it um it was quick and it was easy and it was beautiful and your writing is phenomenal and you should be proud of yourselves Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so apart from that we have a video coming out on friday from our videographer nick so keep an eye on the um the medium utm instagram for that Mm -hmm. and then please pick up a copy on stands this week and next week and probably i'll keep them on there for a little longer um yeah so let's just anything else we need to know so what should we do now just get into everyone's yeah let's just get into everyone's pieces then hello my name is aroni and i'm the opinion editor Uh, For the magazine, I wrote a poem called Meeting Madam You Are. I decided to write a poem because I hadn't written one in a long time and I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to express the abstractness and reality of isolation in a very metaphorical, dark, and sinister way. So I'm going to read two stanzas from the poem for you all now. A white crumpled photo marked 2002. White tears on creased faces. A hopeless token. Madam inspects the door, locked with stress and windows too. 7 a.m., the sunlight floods through the bars, unleashing the world awoken. Her hand hovers over mine, sweaty as I crouch with eyes squinted and step out. Her shrill laughter paints a map to follow. I release myself in doubt. That was two stanzas from a poem that explored the idea of coming out of isolation, which is equally stressful and anxiety-inducing as being put into isolation. All of the last academic year, I was back home in Singapore. I flew back in March 2020 when the university announced in-person classes would be closed and stayed until August of this year when I finally came back for my final year of university. During this year and a half away, I operated with a 12 to 13 hour time difference, which meant that 9 a.m. here in Canada was 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. there, depending on daylight saving hours over here. So I was awake throughout the whole night, sometimes till 5 a.m. because of online synchronous classes. It felt like my mind was stuck in the Canadian time and place, but my body was in the Singapore time and place. And I was spending the entire night in my room, sitting at my desk in front of my computer, and it was excruciatingly isolating, keeping in mind that I was also awake during the day because life goes on as normal during the day in Singapore. In fact, I even had to go to the doctor a couple times because of how physically exhausting it was to operate like that for a year. This period was one of the most challenging times for me, but it also provided me with the tools to strengthen myself. I realized which elements of my life and which friends and relationships I had were truly important for me. I cut off people I thought were contributing toxicity to my life, and I released a lot of the insecurities I felt in regards to long-distance friendships, um, which were stemmed in toxicity. Initially, all that time alone in my head was bad for me because it made me spiral in my thoughts, but eventually that time alone Uh, with myself allowed for a lot of self-reflection that I didn't have the time for before. I don't know what exactly changed for that transition to happen, but it did anyways. I grew firmer in my beliefs and values and I knew what mattered to me the most and what wasn't worth my time. Now that I'm back and although I still have the same online classes, the feeling of isolation is kind of gone because I'm no longer trapped in this dark environment and Both my mind and body are together in the same place, so I don't feel as disjointed. Uh, My favorite line from the poem is, I release myself in doubt, because I think that it encapsulates perfectly what I feel now and how I felt as I was traveling back. Doubtful, yet free at the same time. Doubtful of whether things were going to look better, or if things were going to look the same. 
Hi, my name is Juliana Stacy. I am one of the copy editors on the Medium team this year. And for this edition of the Medium magazine, I wrote a collection of short stories called A New Normal. Um, I'm going to read you an excerpt from one of those short stories called Jacob. All right, class, put everything away. It's time for your algebra quiz. It'll just be a review of topics you should have covered last year in grade eight. You get 20 minutes to complete two questions. The only things I want to see on your desk are pencils, erasers, and sanitizer, Mrs. Conway says. I sink down in my seat and stretch my legs out in front of me, putting my oboe case under my desk. The edge of my sneaker brushes against the back of Stephen's chair. He jolts forward, scooting his seat so far in that he's left with no room to breathe. He gasps, then relaxes, his desk scraping the floor as he slowly pushes it away from his stomach. Let me remind everyone that while we're no longer in middle school, social distancing is still very much a requirement, not a suggestion. Right, Mr. Jackson? How about we shift your desk back to its proper spot? Mrs. Conway glares at me from across the room. How she's able to see my feet from all the way over there is completely beyond me. But I agree, turning my desk back into an island. Mrs. Conway places my test face down on the edge of my desk, careful not to touch anything but the paper. I slide the paper towards me, flipping it over to see a large wet spot instead of question one. I guess that's what happens when you have to sanitize your desk at the beginning of every period. Squinting to read the now blurred lettering, I begin the quiz anyway. When I think of isolation, I think of people who feel completely misunderstood. You can be in a room full of people, and if you don't feel like those people understand what you're going through, you can feel isolated. Just as much as you can feel isolated when you're in a room by yourself. Um, and that's kind of the feeling I was going through when I started writing these short stories. Um, at the beginning of the COVID-19 lockdowns, my family had to take extra precautions because two of my family members are immunocompromised. So we stopped going into grocery stores. We barely went outside. We only left the house really to walk the dogs. And even then, if there were other people, we crossed to the other side of the street to make sure we were maintaining social distancing and more. Um, we only really started regularly grocery shopping in person in July of 2021. So there was over a year of time where I barely left the house. And then in September of 2021, I now had two classes on campus. And that was a little terrifying. I felt like it was wrong to be leaving my house. It felt scary. I didn't want to. I was comfortable doing my online classes from my bed. Um, but I also felt really alone in that because all of my friends and everybody around me was excited to get back in person and start, you know, hanging out with each other again. And I was scared, not excited. So, you know, I felt alone until I talked to, ironically, my five-year-old cousin. Um, and he was just transitioning from JK online to SK in person. And that was a really big jump for him. He was excited. He kept telling me he was ready to make friends in person, but he also was scared. He was asking me what it would be like to learn in a classroom and if it was harder than learning online. And after that conversation, I talked to a family friend who was also moving back from online school, except she was moving into grade 12. And the funny thing about that conversation was that she was more concerned about how other people were going to be reacting to this change than she was. She was like, oh, well, I'm scared that people are going to forget how to act civilly because we've all had to be online and we forget what it's like to interact with people in person. And so that got me thinking, like, I wasn't the only one that was feeling this way. I started to realize that I wasn't the only person that was apprehensive about this return to normal. And I decided that I wanted to write a story or a collection of stories, really, that showcased that. Because later on, when I was writing, I realized, hey, this experience is not going to be the same for the five-year-old as it would for the, you know, 30-year-old. It's, it's a completely different situation. 
while experiencing the same thing. Um, so I wrote the four snapshots, um, as I like to call them, to kind of give readers that view into the hardships that other age groups are dealing with and showcase that, you know, you have emotions about this whole transition that are completely valid no matter what other people are telling you. Um, You can be scared. You can be stressed out. You can be excited or you can be plain out annoyed. It is your prerogative and nobody should be telling you that you need to adapt at a certain rate because everybody is going to adapt differently. Um, In terms of what story I relate to the most, just in terms of age, I would probably say the Jacob story. Um, I based a little bit of it off of my test anxiety and the fact that I really got into a routine um, in online. I was able to do all my essays and my tests in an environment that I could control. And in the Jacob story, that is kind of what he's struggling with, that he can't control the things around him, which you'll you'll see if you continue to read the story. Um, but that was kind of the inspiration and why I feel like that's the story I relate to the most. Um, but that's purely an age thing as well, so. Hello, my name is Danica Tang and I'm the Arts and Entertainment Editor. For the Mediums Magazine, I wrote a nonfiction piece called The Other. The Other is a self-reflection I wrote about the isolation I felt within my own mind. It was really difficult for me to understand my own feelings and insecurities, as well as the actual concept of loneliness. So I surrounded my story with something that was comforting to me, which was video games and I connected my narrative to a game called Celeste. Writing this piece helped me to lay out all my thoughts as I tried to understand the darkest parts of myself. It helped me, and I hope that it can help others as well. Here is a short excerpt from my piece, The Other. Near the start of your journey, you come across, well, you. It's a doppelganger of your character, but with purple hair and red eyes who crashes through a mirror and identifies itself as a part of you. This other self discourages you from climbing the mountain. You can't handle this, the other says, and chases you, playing the antagonist. As you progress, the game introduces new characters who help reveal more about your own character and your desperate need to climb the mountain. You begin to recognize anxiety not only personified in the other, but also manifested through the darkening of the scene, dialogue, and music. The more you play, the more you see that the other is also doubt, and fear, stress, and depression. The other is every struggle your character carries, and eventually, you see it as a monster. I turn off the game and close my eyes for the night. Nothing exists except for me. There's a voice in my head that I recognize as my own, and though it is more outspoken and spiteful than I am, it is still me. It is my other. That was a short part of my piece, and I hope everyone enjoys reading the rest. I really wanted to write about this topic because I feel like so many people struggle with their mental health, and even though there are open conversations about anxiety or depression, there is still a stigma. For me, it felt like something I needed to hide. I wanted my story to be part of a larger narrative that shows life for what it is, to share my experiences with others and hope that it may help anyone to feel less lonely in their own struggles. When I think of isolation, I always pictured my own self with no one else around, and I always thought it was just that, being alone. But that's not the case. I was diagnosed with lupus in 2017, and I wrote a book about my experiences called Chrysalis. When I thought about isolation, I thought about my time in the hospital. While there are good moments in Chrysalis, there is a lot I reveal about some of my worst and difficult times with lupus. Through it all, even though I was surrounded by my family and other people daily, 
I couldn't help but feel an overwhelming sense of loneliness, and I didn't understand why. My magazine piece started with that question and branched out from there. I realized my sense of isolation came from feeling left behind, born from my insecurities, born from my other, which was a manifestation of those monsters in my mind. I felt alone because I wasn't sure if the people around me understood what I felt, and I became even lonelier as I drowned in these thoughts. But I learned to understand where these fears came from, and learned that being alone with myself doesn't have to be a bad thing. Self-love isn't easy, but it's a mountain that I have to climb. My name is Elisa Wynn, and I am the managing editor. I wrote the creative nonfiction story called Silent Interactions. Here's an excerpt. Instead, I run toward the opposite side of the basement where Benoy and Uncle Liam's small bedrooms are located. My socks slide against the hardwood floor, so I use my hands to push against the walls as I fumble my way through my house toward the darker, narrower staircase that leads to our main floor. I jump up the stairs two steps at a time. Finally, I make it outside. A smeared circle in the gray sky blazes without heat. I stand, wild-eyed, feeling the air sagging around me, pushing down at my shoulders, strangely dry as if it hadn't rained for years. I gasp, but my lungs fill with the rancid smell instead. The front door sways open soundlessly. In moments like these, you think, what now? Like when you yell at the TV because the main character, half eaten by a shark, struggles and ends up losing so much more blood. You think, just give up, buddy. Stop struggling and maybe you'll die in peace. Death isn't a dead end, though. I refuse, I refuse to believe it's possible to live a life with five senses only to be tossed into nothingness. Even the memories sitting next to my mother, me comforting her without knowing why she was crying, were worth experiencing. Even the mindless, mundane chatter with schoolmates, walking through locker-lined hallways, glancing at the boy with smiling eyes, must be a taste of something greater. So I don't want to give away too much about why I chose to write the way I did, but I will say that this story was just about me um, trying something new and having fun. I wanted to write about experiences that I have almost forgotten. Experiences from my childhood, memories and states that I have been through early on. And in this piece, there's a lot of contrast. There is a contrast between young and old for me and my grandmother, Benoy. There is a contrast between consciousness and unconsciousness, between words that are spoken and actions that are unspoken, between falling and flying, between the real and the unreal, and between life and death. What I can say without giving too much away is that it, so the story does take place in my childhood, I'm around 13 at this time, and it's a tentative age um, that I experienced this. But yeah, it's a time when I still struggled to communicate my thoughts and my needs, and a time when, as a young Vietnamese second generation immigrant, um, with parents who were away for most of the day, um, I was isolated. I was alone in my home for a lot of the time, and um, I had a caregiver named Mary, but not many people to talk to. Um, so when we were exploring the discussion about when you think of isolation, what do you see? Um, I saw my home. I saw that place, which physically takes place, um, my home that I still live in right now, that same home, is in the middle of the woods, kind of like farther up north, and I also saw my grandmother who is disabled and so she's in a wheelchair and physically stuck here. 
But I also just saw myself and I guess the feeling of being alone and being misunderstood even when I had people around me constantly. Um, so yeah. My name is May and I am the news editor at The Medium. For our magazine, I wrote about my experience with losing my dad and I chose to title this piece Diary of a Fatherless Daughter. In my story, I write about what it's like to lose a parent at a young age and what kinds of effects grief can have on young individuals. I switch back with present and past tense and I use present tense in some areas where I'm narrating the day that I lost my dad and then I use past tense to reflect back on it while I also share some research and what scholars have to say about grief. That being said, here is a quick excerpt of my article. My journey of grief has taught me many things. One of the hardest truths I've had to face was how to survive adolescence as someone who has always felt much older than her other friends. I felt more mature as I took on a responsibility beyond the breadth of my age and beyond what I could handle emotionally. I entered adulthood while in my teenage years and had to teach myself how to navigate this new manner of life. Since losing one of the only people I looked up to, I have never had a sense of direction or guidance since. I watched my mother suffer for years and had to experience milestones without one of my parents. I've always felt like everyone in my life was moving forward, and no matter what I did, I was always a step behind. I felt as though a piece of myself was now buried alongside my father. As soon as I discovered the topic of our magazine, which is isolation, the very first thing that came to mind was to write about the passing of my dad. And at that point in my life, I was really young, I was only 15, and Obviously, I was still in high school, but yet I have never felt as alone as I did then, and I still do, but I've grown a lot since. I really just wanted to share my experience with other people who might be going through the same thing, and I wanted to show them that you're not alone, even if you feel like no one else in the world gets what you're going through right now. Being in high school, I just wanted to have fun and I didn't want to miss out on anything. I remember coming back to school just after two weeks and everyone had already known about what I went through and the hardest part was just not being able to talk about it because no one really knew what to say and I never blamed them. We were all just a bunch of busy kids occupied with your typical high school drama but the looks everyone had on their face and those eyes of pity people gave me or even just smiling awkwardly, that's what made me feel alone the most. I was always the one who had to fill that void and that void is isolation to me. I always had to make other people feel better about not knowing what to say, even though I believed it should be the other way around. And it took me a while to recognize that Regardless of the people around you, events like these are really the ones you have to get through on your own. What I would tell others who have also experienced the loss of a loved one is that time is key. Take it day by day. It'll be really hard for a couple of months or even a year, but those months will shape you a lot. It will give you lots of strength and, in my opinion, Strength is the most valuable skill anyone can have in today's world. One thing I wish I could tell my dad if I saw him today is I miss you and I love you. And thank you for teaching me the resilience I didn't know I needed until I got through losing you. Hi, my name is Hayden. I'm the photos editor and I submitted a photo essay for the magazine called Campus in Limbo. 
The essay is a collection of black and white photographs of different locations on campus, using a high contrast and lowered clarity edit to make the photos look dreamlike and ethereal. I was in the second semester of first year when COVID-19 arrived. When campus sent all the students in residence home as the pandemic situation worsened, I decided to stay behind in residence as I did not want to deal with the 12-hour time zone difference if I moved back to Hong Kong. However, staying behind would turn out to be a choice that was rather isolating. During the first few months of COVID-19 lockdown, I was physically isolated from everyone. I only went out to get groceries, and that was all the outside I saw for several weeks. It was a very surreal experience to barely see anybody face to face, but I did stay in touch with my friends through Discord voice calls and with my family through WhatsApp calls. When I walked around campus on some days, it was completely empty and devoid of life. The campus was on pause, waiting for COVID-19 to leave so that everything could start up again. During my second year, I lived with two friends I made in first year on residence. So even though the pandemic was getting worse, I was able to have more face-to-face -face interactions and it was a lot more engaging. However, on my walks around campus to get food, it was still just as empty as classes were held online. Last year, I actually went on a lot of walks on the UTM nature trail. It's a nice little trail which goes around the perimeter of UTM, and I regularly spotted interesting birds and wildlife there. Once, I even saw a group of coyotes that my roommate pointed out. I didn't include any of these photos in my photo essay, as it didn't fit the theme too well, but you can check them out on my nature Instagram, Hayden Nature. This is one of the hobbies that I developed a lot during lockdown as the nature trail was only five minutes from my residence, and there were always new things to see. I actually enjoy this new hobby a lot, and it's a fun way to spend time in nature. Speaking about photography, I got into photography at a very young age. I remember my grandfather lent me one of the point-and-shoot film cameras that he had, and let me play with it without any film inside, and I had so much fun. As I got older, I mainly shot point-and-shoot cameras, digital, until I entered university, when I bought a DSLR as I felt like I was being more serious about this hobby. I've been taking photographs for the medium since first year, and I felt like it has been a great place to practice my skills and make good use of my camera. Overall, isolation, not only in lockdown, has had a profound impact on me. I dealt with some serious mental health issues for several years, and that has changed how I view mental illnesses and the effect of isolation. These days, I make sure to connect with others, as that has helped me improve my mental health a lot. My name is Dua. I'm the sports and health editor. I wrote a personal essay titled, I Wish This Didn't Have to Change. Here is an excerpt from my piece. Learning and interacting on Zoom did not feel so different for me because I always feel disconnected from my environment. The social isolation didn't impact me as much because I always feel isolated from my peers. The looming feeling of something not being right wasn't what separated me from others, but rather something that connected me to others. Of course, I'm thrilled a vaccine is here, writes Rivka Solomon, another woman with a chronic illness in Washington Post. I hope life for most healthy folks will soon get back to normal. Thank goodness. Yet when the rest of the world goes off video conferencing, those of us who live with health challenges and disabilities may not be able to join back in. I am grateful for the supports I've received during both online and in-person learning at UTM. They greatly improved my experience and alleviated much of my stress. I also believe that if there was something specific I felt I needed to make my experience better, such as extra time to complete assignments, I could negotiate those with my professors or counselors. That's exactly the part where it becomes difficult, though. Chronic illness does not exist in a vacuum. It impacts every part of your life, even if that is as simple as being too tired to do something and hating yourself because of it. It can be difficult to pinpoint a specific reason or moment that makes life difficult because your illness is so deeply intertwined with your life that it is almost impossible to separate the two. I chose to write about my mental health during the pandemic because I realized that my response to online learning varied from other students'. 
A lot of my classmates talked about how difficult it was for them, and people seemed to be really excited when in-person classes returned. However, for me, the experience of online learning in many ways was easier than in-person learning because of my illness. And I think the experience was like an internal tug of war because I was glad that people were safe and able to return to their normal lives, but I was simultaneously wishing that things didn't have to change. So surprisingly, when I think of isolation, I actually see crowds. And I think it's because in crowds, it can be really easy to see a group of people as a single unit rather than as a collection of individual units. And this relates back to my piece a bit, because while it's easy to assume that all students struggle with online learning because several say so, I think there's also a smaller, quieter group of us who struggled with in-person classes and can definitely benefit from keeping some classes online. So for current students at UTM, regardless of whether you're taking in-person or online courses, I recommend scheduling some time for yourself every day. And I don't mean just taking breaks while studying, but actually having a good hour and a half to two hours where you do something you enjoy, preferably something away from the screen. And short term, this may not make much of a difference, but long term, I think it teaches you to prioritize yourself and feel less resentment towards your classes and work for taking away your free time. My name's Miguel. I'm one of the copy editors at The Medium, and I wrote the piece, The Gray Divide During COVID-19. On March 17th, 2020, Ontario Premier Doug Ford declared a state of emergency in Ontario, and the province-wide shutdown began. Lockdown policies shuttered businesses, public spaces, libraries, hospices, and old age homes, penning up elderly folk. Suddenly, everyone's world shrank to the rooms in our homes, the sidewalks we could stroll on for an hour every day, the grocery stores filled with impersonal masked faces. Senior citizens were among the hardest hit by COVID-19. The lockdown severed them from their communities, their sense of belonging, meager and abused as that belonging already was, was exchanged for exile. So, an entire population of people, already swept to the side, already isolated, already vulnerable, were placed in a government-enforced limbo. They were left alone and ill-prepared for months of hyper-isolation hyper without the help of the technology that younger people had access to. My father's mother lives in Portugal, in the mountains above a small town called Arques de Valdevez. Her plot of land is surrounded by grapevines and worn grey stone walls. Stray cats roam on their soft pads through the bright blue, pink, and yellow wildflowers that bloom in her garden. Five feet from the brick house she and her daughter, my aunt, live in. In the morning, the sun breaks across the terraced hills and floods this beautiful but shambled space. At night, the sky turns into a thick black blanket studded with brilliant diamond stars. And inside the house, my grandma sits in front of a small 20-inch TV, listening to National Journal, while she scribbles Portuguese words into her crossword puzzle book. I once received a call through Skype, sometime at the height of the second wave in Portugal, and on my phone I saw my grandma and aunt's pixelated faces lagging and jumping across the screen in unnatural rhythms. They asked me how they could make the quality better. I gave them some options, but they were unsure of how to follow my directions. Their voices started to crack, and then they suddenly froze. A robotic voice rang out, and the call dropped. A combination of little access to a quality internet connection, a lack of technological aptitude, and an unfulfilled desire to connect with the world. Beyond her stone walls and stray cats, past the mountains that rise like bars around her home, over the sea that she will never cross, placed my grandmother in isolation. I chose to write about this topic um, just based off of inquiry and, and a simple question, which was, you know, what were the mental effects of the lockdowns in Ontario? Um, just plain and simple. What kind of, what kind of detrimental effects um, happened because of the lockdown? And I was concerned with elderly folk at the time because um, my grandma was sick. Um, my grandma lives up in these mountains 
um, and, and they're a little bit isolated. They're um, about 30 minute drive, 30 or 40 minute drive from the town that they that they're they're next to, and um, family is sort of working a lot, not very uh, close by. And my aunt, who's who's pretty much her caretaker, um, has to work as well. And um, during the um, during the lockdowns in Portugal, uh, she was alone for a little while, um, and she got sort of stuck, and she fell um, down some stairs and was stuck in the sun for, you know, three or four or five hours, and after that point, she kind of isolated herself, and it was very hard for anybody to really reach out to her, and not only that, it was almost impossible for them to do it at all, um, because they were scared of getting people sick, people weren't visiting her, um, me, my mom, um, you know, my brother, my family, we, we couldn't go fly over there in the summer and visit her as we usually do. Um, so it was kind of an isolating moment for her. And you could see these um, mental defects happening. And then um, her health took a turn for the worse. And so um, she's in hospital right now and, and we try to keep up with her. But that was really my, my question. What kind of effects are going to be seen um, in the elderly population three or four years from now? Um, when when these lockdowns are lifted and um, restrictions are eased and we sort of start to see the effects of those two very intense years of lockdown. Um, and yeah, I think the only thing we can really do as, as students um, or as young people is to make connections uh, with the elderly folk that we do have in our lives, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, um, any aunts or uncles who might be older, um, and really... Um, really maintain our social ties with them and when we're out in the world and, and saying hello to an elderly person every once in a while and uh, maybe sitting down with them if that's if that's possible um, it's not a um, rainbow type movie where we just get to sit and have a chat with any old person we'd like but um, some people are open to it and, and open to speaking so that's all I can really suggest to try to maintain connections with old people uh, or, or older people at least Hi, my name is Belicia. I'm the social media and online editor, and I wrote an article called The Epidemic of Social Media. It's basically an article that highlights the dichotomy of social media and how it can be a place of connection to your friends, to your family, to even strangers and celebrities, but also a place of isolation. And of course, as the social media editor, this was of great interest to me, as well as just being a social media manager for nonprofits um, and other organizations and people. If I were to read a portion of my article, it'd be this one. The allure of social media lies in its ability to distract us from our own reality. App creators continually try to read us in and keep our attention on the app by sending push notifications with updates we missed or live streams we need to check out. In my own life, I try to resist, yet little by little, as job rejections piled up and idolists increased, I soon gave in to social media's tug. As the pandemic waged on, social media at the epicenter for virtual connection transformed into a place of isolation. In the same place, I saw solence, isolation of a different variety spawned. In this quote, I wanted to play on the idea of variance by using the word variety, which to me almost sounds similar. Right now, in November 2021, there is a Delta variant going around, which is more transmittable and it is more severe than the variants before it. And the word isolation this word has changed or transformed or evolved in its meaning during the pandemic because at first before the pandemic isolation was just like being by yourself um without without being around other people and of course that's kind of a similar meaning that we have now but in reference to isolation we usually mean we're isolated from people outside of our households um, or we're experiencing loneliness due to social media or other factors but in this case i'm focusing on social media so in my article i wanted to really focus on that change that happened 
So I sat down with six of my peers who are either university or college students or recent grads who are in the field, such as the registered nurse I spoke to or someone who's still trying to find employment after undergrad. So what I found is that many people faced or experienced isolation during the pandemic and this was only exasperated by social media and the government guidelines that were put in place. What I initially initially thought of social media, it was about darkness and despair and loneliness. And that's certainly how the article started out. But what I realized, especially after reading other pieces and hearing from some of my interviewees, is that isolation doesn't have to be a bad thing. Sure, on social media, it can, um, amplify some of the issues that we face in terms of like mental health or body image issues comparison and much much more but isolation while there are dangers also can be a good thing for me personally and this is what really inspired the piece was my experience using social media during the pandemic i started by using it a lot i talked to a lot of people maybe 30 to 50 people a day on social media and at first it was okay it was actually nice talking to people even though i lived with five other people so technically i wasn't like alone but at points or at times i did feel lonely and having that bit of connection with other people with friends or even acquaintances was nice and we all had a common shared experience of living in the pandemic but after a while things start to feel repetitive everyone's in the same situation so we're all bored at home doing nothing so how are you doing and what are you doing kind of brings out like the same answers every time and that got tiring and i started distancing myself from social media and a little bit of other people and that wasn't that wasn't a social distancing pun but i realized i didn't want to be on social media anymore not as much i started taking breaks on social media like three weeks to a month and i felt at peace and that's when i realized that although social media has its advantages and its abilities to connect us it also has its downfalls and it can be very unhealthy in the way that we perceive other people how we perceive ourselves and this can create many of the issues that i kind of touched on before do you know when you're on tiktok or that depends if you have tiktok but there's this point when you keep scrolling that you'll get a a tiktok from tiktok like the tiktok official tiktok account where they'll tell you um to stop scrolling to take a break drink some water go take a break and all that stuff and of course people like what like stop trying to stop me from being on social media but what they don't realize is that social media has all these effects on us on our uh, feelings of loneliness and on our mental health so it is important to take breaks when you can um, even though we do want to connect with people and escape from reality sometimes it's important to really find that place where we can just be free from distractions Hey everyone, my name is Jaros and I am the Features Editor at The Medium this year. For the isolation issue, I wrote a feature article on creativity as a result of the pandemic titled, You're More Creative Than You Think. The piece explores what makes us creative and spotlights two small businesses that were born out of isolation. I spent a lot of time on social media to keep my mind busy. Story after story, and post after post, I noticed that my peers were going through similar experiences as me, but not everyone was on the same page. While I was leaving a permanent body-sized dent in my couch, others were announcing their newly established small businesses. Among them were custom cakes and confections and stitched canvas businesses. I remember feeling proud about my friends starting their own business and doing something productive with their time. However, I couldn't help but feel bad about my lack of creativity during the uncertain times. And when I talked to my friends about this, they told me that they felt the same way. Little did we know, we had actually been creative the entire time. We figured out ways to hang out during the pandemic, such as hiking and mountain biking. 
and that slowly pulled us back into who we were. I wanted to share that we're all in the same boat. Even if we had to physically distance ourselves from the people we care about, we were all battling the same fight, finding ourselves in times of isolation and uncertainty. When I think of isolation, what do I see? Nothing. I see nothing. But nothing doesn't have to be a bad thing. We're so accustomed to living surrounded by others, which can hinder our ability to grow. Being alone in our thoughts can be beneficial. We all need to recharge our social batteries. Isolation due to the pandemic was extreme. Perhaps we overcharged our batteries. But that also forced us to find new creative ways to cope with isolation. So, actually, I do see something. With isolation, I see growth. How has isolation made me creative? Being alone made me gather my thoughts. It slowed life down and I was able to think about my own struggles and how to fix them. Perhaps the way to fix them didn't strike me immediately. I had to do other activities to keep my thoughts in line. I went for walks, biked around, played video games with friends, figured out ways to watch movies with friends together, and more. Then I realized trying to keep myself from feeling the negative impacts of isolation made me creative. And in some ways, when I was doing certain activities, I was able to reflect and keep busy at the same time. That's how isolation made me creative. I'm Liz and I'm the editor-in-chief here at The Medium. My piece in Moving Still is titled, A Car Headed for a Cliff, Healthcare in Rural and Northern Ontario. Here's an excerpt. Shirley Roebuck, a nurse from rural Ontario, works in a small hospital in Wallisburg. In a collection of research data and stories about rural healthcare systems from the Ontario Health Coalition, Robick describes the disregard exhibited by our political leaders as well as the healthcare leaders as the reason for small community hospitals closing their doors. Rural hospitals with resources and services compromised are struggling to serve their communities. Robick affirms that rural hospitals can become vibrant again with just a fraction of the services offered in urban centres. Enough budget cuts for rural centers, she demands. As a nurse, I see every day how budget cuts have downloaded costs and stress onto patients and their families who struggle to travel further for care or go without, putting their health in jeopardy. The silence is heart-rendering. Rooms that once offered sanctuary to the sick and halls that once resounded to the echoes of busy feet are now filled with overflowing boxes and sundry equipment describes Kathleen Todd in the same report as Roebuck. Todd served as hospital administrator at Berks Falls and District Health Center, which recently closed after 61 years of serving the community. Her steps echo in the empty hospital halls. The local community of 7,000 in northern Muskoka is advised that all lost services can now be easily obtained at three area hospitals, all 45 minutes to an hour away. There are many nuances to the changes necessary in addressing disparities, but the first step is always understanding the presence of such disparities and listening to those living through them. Isolation from healthcare services in Ontario is a life-threatening issue that must be addressed now. In my piece, I talk about um, the status of healthcare in northern and rural Ontario. I address things such as the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, um, as well as various specific disparities faced by specific communities such as the indigenous community and i had the opportunity to interview dr kate mulligan of u of t's dalalana school of public health as well as uh, utm professor leanne de souza kenny as well as dr amanda shepherd also of u of t's dalalana school of public health and lastly dr sarah newbury from um she's actually a a generalist family physician. Um, she's been working in Marathon, Ontario for the last 25 years, and she's the inaugural assistant dean of physician workforce strategy at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. So one of the really important things that we can do as students as we go through our undergraduate career is to 
take courses that have to do with health policy. Because one thing that I realized in my time speaking with the doctors that I interviewed is that science and healthcare and policy all work at really different rates. As we saw with COVID, you know, policymakers wanted to make changes really fast, like the vaccine. They wanted a vaccine. But the thing is that science works at a different rate. So understanding policy is really going to be helpful to implementing healthcare resources and boundaries that will help our communities. Another thing as well is if you're taking a course or listening to a podcast, think about how that can help make um, the Canadian kind of environment more equal across geographical areas. So we don't really think about what happens like a thousand kilometers away, but Ontario is a huge province and there are so many people that have totally different experiences in healthcare. So we call an ambulance and we get someone in 20 minutes, they might need to wait four hours because they're living somewhere off a dirt road that maybe can't even be accessed, needs to be accessed by like a helicopter. So those are the things that we need to talk about when we're educating ourselves, especially if you're going into healthcare. I'm Nick, I'm a filmmaker based out of Toronto, and I am the videographer at The Medium this year. So when I think about isolation, I think about being bogged down through, you know, during COVID, and there's this no sense of urgency. Um, you know, Things are slowly starting to go back to normal and it's exciting. And we live in this culture of, we gotta get going and live in this society of constant simulation. And things are now sort of like at a more digestible pace for sure. And some of the favorite things that I love about telling stories through videography is as far back as I remember, I've wanted to work with cameras in some sort of way. I was asking my parents when they were videotaping um, me at you know family gatherings when I was five or having some sort of vi visual stimulation has always been part of my life for sure. And I loved watching and uh, being entertained at heart. I remember I was always glued to uh, the TV watching something and I was just like always fascinated about how things worked and uh, why things were moving in a certain way and looking at that side for sure. And now fast forwarding when I was in school, taking that knowledge of learning photography and in school and working with artists right out of high school and falling in love with the music industry, I was starved around this time um, and I knew the technical side of, of the cameras but I knew I wanted to do more with video and learn the art side of it and that's when fast forward I you know I got my first camera it was a Canon 5D Mark III and it was definitely my first tool to use to get in that work industry and um, it opened more doors into the um, industry of music, filming with DJs, working at uh, a certain music festival events and uh, filming artists. And all the while doing this while finishing up my last year of high school. So it was me refining my craft and I would try to find any work at the time and it would be like odd jobs. It was kind of all over the place and I did this, you know, really just to like pay the bills really and pay for my gear. So my philosophy back then was really like only I was I only felt like I was good as the gear I had. And it was a lot of like flipping new gear, buying new tech. And it seemed like I always went into this cycle of buying the latest to increase my work opportunities. But really, it's like about the stories I tell through video. That's the most important thing. And I was really unhappy with with my work. And I wanted to push myself to learn more about my art. And like, I saw my art as a reflection of myself. And I think around this time, I was also learning more about myself and how to love myself and try new things and fail hard, <laughs> flat on the floor, but like keep going. Um, and I had, I didn't have like a breaking point, but at this time I dropped out of uni and had no real defining moment that like, something clicked but definitely i want to go onto a new path which is cinematography and the art side i remember in my first year of uni i wanted to do like technology and like the ccit program and that wasn't really working out for me um and i really wanted to like work with things you know like tactical like working with my hands and and 
and working with others. That's what I want to do. You're starting to say yes to things, being scared, but trying new things in the process. Now looking at my work, I see a new style and the art of my life is, as a whole is very cyclical in a way, but it's also about like breaking the boundaries and giving the energy the work it needs. And the important thing is, I find is honesty in my work and uh, looking at other people's work, I try and find that kind of honesty. So, you know, the gratification coming with within and overcoming challenges, working with others, you know, discovering parts of, of, you know, yourself and that you never knew is the most incredible part of making films and learning more about myself and in turn present that to others for them to see what I'm seeing through my eyes as an artist. And now I'm working on the next opportunity and working with smaller, lighter gear and not falling into that trap of like creating obstacles by buying new gear and really like trying new things, pushing into this new avenue and walking into this new path of storytelling, which is honestly super exciting for sure. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this wonderful episode. Elisa and I are so incredibly proud of the work that we've put together as a team to have this come together and be in our hands right here as we sit in the office. Mm -hmm. um, and we hope that this collection of research and of creative stories uh, encourages you to reflect upon your own narrative and find something that you can relate to. Lastly, we also hope that this magazine will inspire you to see isolation as what it is. Not necessarily good or not necessarily bad, but simply a state we all experience in life. And with that, thank you and have a great week.